You now tuned in to the Gunk Town Podcast. I'm your boy Doug B. We ain't got nothing to talk about, but we got something to talk about. Let's go. Good people, good people, good people. Welcome back to the Gumptown Podcast, episode 129. I'm your boy, Doug B. If you tuned in to this podcast, thank you for your time and your attention. I really appreciate you giving this podcast a shot. Today's guest is the founder and owner of Anderson Admissions Academy. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I'm sure we'll all be inspired by her story. Let's chop it up with Akeisha Anderson. Akeisha, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Glad to hear that. All is well on my end, too. First things first, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to chop it up with me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for inviting me here today. I'm excited to chat with you. Yes, ma'am. Of course, here to talk about Anderson Admissions Academy and all the great things you have going on in business. But before we talk business, let's get to know the woman behind the brand. So you were born and raised in Montgomery. What was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I grew up in Montgomery. Um, I had an older, well, I have an older brother and a younger sister. I like to consider myself as being raised um, mainly by a single father in Montgomery. Grew up in on Cottage Hill, and I don't know. Montgomery was just a quiet, quaint place to me, at least, and I appreciate that. Um, my father and my mother are very opinionated people. I know that growing up, my father used to talk to us about the civil rights movement and, you know, just different advocacy and um, social justice stuff happening. And so that kind of, you know, inside or ignited a passion within me to like care about issues like that. But um, growing up in the birthplace of the civil rights movement, as well as the birthplace of the Confederacy was complicated and interesting. And so I actually really loved Montgomery growing up, to be honest with you. Okay, that's amazing. So you had parents in your life, very opinionated, giving you a lot of great information and had your siblings. So overall, it just sounds like you had a great village around you growing up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. That's amazing. So you were saying you, you went on to in high school in San Antonio, Texas. Did you experience any cultural shocks moving from the Gump to San Antonio? Yeah, so I went from Houston Hill Middle School to Taft High School in San Antonio, Texas. Um, And it's weird because San Antonio, or at least the high school I went to, was a predominantly Hispanic high school. And so I believe our mayor at the time was Latino and just things like that. So I was exposed a lot to... um, Latinx um, culture while in high school. And I would say that when I came back to Montgomery for college, people used to ask me if I went to a white or a black high school. And I used to always say neither. Um, But I mean, I was in a diverse space and it was pretty cool. San Antonio is a bigger city, um, a little bit more to do. I liked it, but I don't know something about Montgomery and the small town feel that I just can't get away from. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ma'am. No doubt. So you finish up high school in San Antonio and you come back to the Gump to attend the Alabama State University. What was the HBCU experience like for you? Oh, I loved it. The HBCU experience for me was phenomenal. Um, For me, I in high school is when Drumline came out. And so after watching Drumline, you could not convince me that I was not going to HBCU. Um, And I would say that everything that I expected from an HBCU and more Alabama State gave me, and I really appreciate it. Um, I love 
the fact that there were classes and intentionality around learning like our culture, our history, and just things that I feel like I hadn't learned to that extent in that degree. And I ended up going to law school at University of Alabama, great law school, but the undergraduate campus, just anytime I interacted with undergraduate campus, I would just felt so grateful that I went to ASU for undergrad because I do not know if I could have survived a PWI for undergrad, to be honest with you. Wow, that's amazing. And it's so interesting that you say that about the HBCU experience because you're spot on, like getting a chance to learn about our history, getting a chance to be around our people and people from Montgomery like you and I and meeting people from the East Coast, the West Coast, the Midwest. It's nothing like that college experience. Like Everybody who looks like you and I, I really believe should go to an HBCU at least one year. I guarantee you they'll stay all four if they go one though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So you go on to graduate from the Alabama State University and you end up at law school at UA. And present day, you are the founder and owner of Anderson Admissions Academy. What you got going on products and services wise? Yes. So I, um, Went to law school knowing I never wanted to be in a courtroom. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be um, doing policy work. So that passion that my father incited in me with regard to social justice issues, I just realized that by the time people get to a courtroom, a lot of times, you know, the decisions pre-made what's going to happen to them. And so I wanted to be involved in writing laws and policies. So during the day, I'm a lobbyist. Um, I run a policy team that works in Montgomery, Alabama, but Outside of my day job, I run Anderson Admissions Academy, which is a phenomenal experience for me. It gives me the opportunity to help underrepresented students, namely students of color, low-income students, and first-generation college students navigate the law school admissions process. So the legal profession is very white male-dominated. Only 5% of the legal profession is Black. Only 2% of us are Black women. Um, In the stats are even more stark for other racial minority groups. And so I basically, you know, provide services that are affordable. I even have um, pay what you can policies where people can name their price and whatever they can afford is what they pay, even if that's nothing. But I basically help underrepresented students navigate the law school admissions process via essay brainstorming, document review um, services for them, um, full cycle assistance, which is me basically, you know, meeting with them on Zoom regularly, holding their hand throughout the process, making sure they're doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes um, and just things like that. So it's really exciting to see, you know, the next generation of the legal profession in this way. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. I think that it's powerful that you are giving back by the products and services that you are offering through the academy because yeah, people who look like you and I definitely need um, assistance in most areas and we need just a helping hand, which you're providing for people who are going through the the law school application process. And I, I'm pretty sure that's pretty rigorous. I never went through it. So can you tell us a little bit about just that process in itself, just how rigorous it is getting into law school? Yeah. So, um, Let me backtrack a little. So the way I even got into this business is after law school, I moved to California, Los Angeles for my first real lawyer job. And I was a federal policy attorney. Um, Throughout law school, I had done similar work. But at this point in time, Trump was president and I just I, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do federal policy work. It felt like the equivalent of going to court every day and losing just because my stances and my views were so, you know, 
different from the administration. So I needed a change. I needed to pivot. And there was a job opening. Um, I was working at a think tank based at UCLA School of Law. And I needed to pivot. And there was a job opening in admissions at UCLA School of Law. And I got a call from someone from University of Alabama encouraging me to apply, told me I'd be great at it. And I did. I applied. I got the job. And working in admissions um, at UCLA, we got about 7,000 applications a year and only had seats for about 300, 330 students. So the vast majority of people applying to our law school were not going to get into our law school. Um, and in my role, I reviewed applications. I um, did recruitment trips where I went to fairs and I talked to prospective students. Um when students would come visit the law school, occasionally I hosted tours, but I absolutely um, answered questions that students had. But working in that realm, one thing that I noticed was that there were very few people who looked like you and I that ever walked into my office and got got all the behind the scenes um, insight and advice from me about you know what it took to really be a strong applicant, a competitive applicant, and so. Because law schools get so many applications and have so few seats, a large part of what admissions officers do is basically just weed out candidates. It is so much easier to reject people and rejecting people is actually what you're supposed to do in many instances. And the truth of the matter is there are just things that I feel like are forward facing that, you know, are said to applicants, you know, on websites, et cetera. And then there are things that are set behind the scenes, you know, behind closed doors where, you know, this is what we really want. This is what we really expect, et cetera. And to me, it's unfortunate that a lot of people are penalized by not knowing what is being set behind those closed doors that they are supposed to know by osmosis, osmosis or some other form of, you know, telepathic, um, whatever, um, ability of just what it is that they're supposed to do to be a strong candidate. And that frustrated me. Um, we, when I worked in admissions, we in California were already banned um, from taking race into consideration when um, reviewing applications. So affirmative action had been banned in California since the 90s. So everything that is happening now since the Supreme Court's decision last summer um is something that I'm already prepared to deal with just because of the environment that I worked in. But I noticed too that a lot of the problems that I saw when I worked in admissions was students would come to my office and share certain things with me after a decision had been made, after, you know, they did not get the decision that they wanted. And I would sometimes just, you know, put my face in my hand just in frustration. Like, I wish you had put that on paper. Or I wish you had said that thing. Or, you know, this could have made the difference for you. And so there's just so much knowledge that, you know, people don't know. There's so much that I realized I didn't know when I was applying to law school um, that really, I think, is one of the barriers to, you know, diversifying the legal profession. And so personally, as a Black woman attorney, I find the legal profession to be somewhat isolating, somewhat lonely. Of course, I have my tribe of, you know, friends and other fellow Black women doing similar work, but I just wish there were so many more of us. And so my work kind of, you know, spills out of that place um, of really hoping that, you know, someday, you know, our children, you know, can be lawyers if they want and be, you know, in a field that kind of is more reflective of the national demographics rather than, you know, us being such a small percentage of the profession.
Wow, that's powerful. So you being in that role at UCLA and just seeing everything that was going on, and I had no idea that getting into law school that was that was gatekeeping and getting into law school. That's wow. That's it shouldn't be shocking, but it is shocking. I never, like I said, I never even thought of going to law school. But I think it's amazing that you were able to identify that and that students feel comfortable speaking to you. Applicants feel comfortable speaking to you about their experience and and what occurred and things of that nature. And then even you just taking that and turning it into what you're doing now with the Academy. I just think it's very powerful. Very dope. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And that ties right into my next portion. So whenever I have entrepreneurs, creators on the platform, like yourself, I like to talk about three things, the aha moment, action, and audacity. It sounds like you had your aha moment to create the Academy just during your time working at UCLA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's where I learned so much about the ins and outs and where people fall short and just, yeah, just all the things I didn't know when I was applying that I know so many people don't know when they're applying. Absolutely. That was definitely my aha. Okay. And from the time you had that aha moment, how long did it take you to take action towards coming up with a name and actually getting the academy started? Yeah. So I mentioned that um, I moved to admissions because I was frustrated with, you know, policy work on the federal level because of the administration at the time. But yeah. I worked in admissions for a few years and I got to a point where I was I felt like I was at a crossroads. I either was going to stay in admissions and become like so many of my friends now who started with me in admissions and be a dean of admissions one day. Or I was going to jump back into the policy world, but I did. I had a short window of time to decide which path I was going to stay on. So I jumped back into the policy world, came to do state level policy back home in Alabama. Um, but I instantly missed admissions. Like I missed the work I was doing. So I did stay um, even after leaving my job. I did stay on as contract as a contract employee for a minute, helping them um, with their cycle, reviewing applications. But Honestly, I came back to Alabama February um, 2020, and I started Anderson Admissions November 2020. So I finished out the cycle with UCLA School of Law. Probably I worked for them probably until May or June. Um, and a few months later is when I opened Anderson Admissions Academy. OK, good stuff. So you got the academy off the ground during the pandemic. And of course, we know that that time was very interesting, very tumultuous, a lot of the world was in a very interesting place. So I, I commend you for even having the courage to start the academy during the pandemic. And that and uh and of course with Zoom and technology, I'm sounds like you're able to, to leverage technology to get things to get the business running and keep things operational. Absolutely. Um technology is a game changer for me, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Absolutely. For that last portion, audacity, it's one thing to have an idea, it's another thing to act on the idea. But to put Anderson Admissions Academy out to the world, considering the gatekeeping going on in the law of school application process, it took courage, it took audacity to put it out to the world to be praised or criticized. Who or what gave you that audacity to put it out to the world? Oh, I referenced my parents earlier in this right. um, interview, but um, my parents definitely, if they have instilled nothing else in me. It has been confidence and <laughs> courage. Um, and so I don't think I'm a very shy person. I think that I probably am more so what some would refer to as impulsive at times. And so for me, it's more so a matter of when I get like the instinct to do something, acting on it quickly, um, 
rather than, you know, pondering it and letting like that doubt come out. So what I did when I started Anderson Admissions Academy was I forced myself to like go for it with it. So I basically opened Anderson Admissions Academy with an Instagram post. Um, I maybe got like 20 followers in a month. I don't know. But one of my first Instagram posts was I'm going to do a webinar on November 19th, 2020. Um and because I told people I was going to do something, I had to do it. And so at that point, there was no turning back. And so we opened, um, started off with that one Instagram post and 20 followers. And we're up to like almost 12,000 followers now. And um, it just, it started and kept going. Wow. Amazing. Powerful stuff. And yes, you did mention your parents and shout out to them for this instilling that confidence in you and giving you giving you the audacity to get this started. And yeah, I mean, that's great that you put it out there to the world. Cause like you said, once you posted about it, you had to pretty much had to hold yourself accountable because you put it out there and people don't forget anything on the internet. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I, mm -hmm. Yes. I will add though, something that I think helped me, I heard this years ago and I really don't know who said this, but it kind of is similar to the saying about, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. But I heard years ago, somebody say something about you don't have to have the website. You don't have to have the, you know, logo. You don't have to have all this stuff to get together to get started when it comes to starting a business. Um, and that really helped me get started, to be honest with you. So for me, honestly, it was an Instagram post. The website and all that came later. Um but once I knew or decided that I was going to do it, I did it. And so the structures were built along the way. They're still being built, some of them. Um, but it definitely helped my feet to the fire, not, you know, trying to make sure that I had everything perfect and right and, you know, pretty before I got started. I started with what I had. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And that's powerful what you just said. And it's so true. It's very important to start with what you have because, it's very easy to get caught up in all the logistics. You got to have the, like you said, the website, the logo. And while you're waiting to get all that started, it's it's one of those things, okay, you say, let me get the logo. And then once you get the logo, you're going to find something else. Oh, let me get the website up. I mean, it, it turns into like a domino effect. So everything you said is spot on. It's just one of those things. Just start, figure it out as you go. I mean, it's never a perfect time to get started. I mean, yesterday was, was the perfect time to get started. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. So the Academy has done great things and I know great things are coming down the pipeline, which leads to my next portion vision. What are some of your short-term and long-term goals for the Academy that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah. So I had a phenomenal opportunity this year to partner with um, a cohort of women that are, all trying to get into law school. They have gotten a scholarship to help fund them um, in applying to law school. And I got to work with them um, in a group catch coaching setting. And it was such a blast. And so I really see myself, you know, moving more towards group coaching. Of course, I'll keep doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I really like the energy and the um, spark that I feel when I get to have other women all striving for the same thing, you know, working together, interacting on a weekly basis, you know, sharing their ups and downs with each other. Of course, I just worked with women this year because that is who, you know, um, the group was, but I definitely foresee myself doing more group coaching with both men and women. Um, and there was a second part to your question, Doug. I'm sorry. 
Oh, no worries. Yes, I was just asking just in terms of short-term and long-term goals that you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, that's short-term. Um, long-term, I actually don't know where I will go. I'm in this weird position where most people would probably decide to quit their day job and just run their business full-time if they were in my shoes, just given um, my level of success in business. But I really love what I do <laughs> in terms of lobbying and policy work. And so long-term, I think the overarching question is just going to be how long do I do both and how long before I, you know, step fully into just running my business. Um, if you ask me, it'll probably be until these student loans are forgiven, but who knows? So long-term, I will have to figure that piece out. Okay. Sounds good. Long-term, you'll figure it out. And short-term, just in terms of the group coaching, I have no doubt you'll get it up and running very soon. Thank you. Ma'am. As we wrap up the podcast, I want to ask a million-dollar question. I started this podcast to highlight the greatness connected to the city of Montgomery. Whether you were born here or lived here for a significant period of your life, be it college, military, or work, you being a hometown hero with Keisha, what makes you the most proud to be from the Gump? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> you said this is a family <laughs> podcast. I mean, in this moment, I mean, this is so silly, but... I will say that I went on a Harriet um, cruise a few months ago after, you know, the the incident at the riverfront. Uh -huh. So <laughs> so I say this just to say that I honestly am proud of, you know, the spirit of Montgomery and just that audacity that, you know, those who came before us had, whether that was, you know, to create a college for, you know, people like you and I to be able to learn and, you know, get educated or whether that is, you know, the audacity to, you know, refuse to give up the seat on their bus or give up their seat on the bus or the audacity to, you know, start a nationwide movement that, you know, change the foundation and the fabric of this nation. And so I, I just love what Montgomery represents and symbolizes, to be honest with you. It really represents audacity and the willingness to, want more, strive for more, and say that you're not taking anything less than more. Damn, powerful, powerful. So Akisha, how can the people connect with you? What are your social media handles and website? Yes, so people can find me on Instagram and TikTok at ask, A-S-K, Akisha, A-K-I-E-S-H-A. Um, and my website is Anderson Admissions with an S at the end. So A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N-A-D-M-I-S-S-I-O-N-S dot com. So ask Akisha and Anderson Admissions dot com. Too easy. And of course, I'll put all of that information in the description of the episode. Hey, Akisha, thanks again for the conversation. I really appreciate you. No problem. Thank you so much again for having me. This was great. Yes, ma'am. Good people, that concludes another dope episode of the Guntown Podcast. In the meantime, in between time, y'all know what to do. Be blessed, be safe, but most importantly, have the audacity to be you. Gone. Thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate your time and your attention. Until next time.